Well, welcome, friends, to episode 15 of Talk Sports, our continuing adventures in the art of lively conversation. I'll be your host today, as usual, for what should prove to be unlike any of our previous episodes to date, but we hope you will enjoy equally as much. Firstly, I'm feeling a little naked here and somewhat out of sorts due to the fact that my good friend Roscoe is not joining us today for the podcast. Roscoe, as mentioned in our previous episode, has a long-standing commitment to attend the annual Cinecon Silent Film Festival in Los Angeles right around this time of year before and during the Labor Day weekend, so he's kind of gone. So I'm kind of flying solo here, so to speak. And secondly, we have an extraordinary guest on our show today. We've had a string of interesting and entertaining guests on our recent podcasts, though I dare say our special visitor today is in a whole different category of cool, if I may say that, a different category of cool. Kurt Elling won a Grammy Award for Best Jazz Vocal Album in 2009, and I'm going to extol some of your virtues and accomplishments before we bring you out. It has been nominated 10 other times for his work as a vocalist. He has won the Downbeat Critics Poll 13 times, the Downbeat Readers Poll 7 times, and the Jazz Times Readers Poll 8 times, all in the Male Vocalist of the Year category. In 2010, he was awarded the Edison Jazz World Award, that's the Dutch equivalent of a Grammy, for his album The Gate. In 2012, he was honored as the first jazz ambassador at the Silesian Jazz Festival in Poland. And in 2013, he was named International Jazz Artist of the Year in the Jazz FM Awards. That's in the UK. That's just a few of his many accolades. I'm delighted and honored to welcome to Talk Sports the inimitable Mr. Kurt Elling. Welcome to the podcast, Kurt. Thank you. I am inimitable. Do you... not try to eliminate me. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare, and no Don't one really ever has. Now, I, we've it. known each other for quite some time, haven't we, you Yes, and I? we have, my friend. Um, you've known my wife a bit longer, but uh, uh, my fondest uh, and re- uh, longest memory of you is you actually sang at our wedding. It's true. I was there, and I pitched perfect to did. You were pitch perfect that day. That's about 10 years ago, and we so, so appreciate it. You sang um, a song that we had chosen as our, our first dance. You sang That's All which is a classic and has been recorded by a million people. Uh, we actually have a recording of it here, and um, I might insert it at some point later on as I edit this podcast, with your permission. There you go. God bless you. You're, you're always a gentleman with that. We'd like to start off something with uh, a little bit of what's in the news uh, every, every week, and last week we coined a new segment called Keys to the Carly, which is what's Carly Fiorina up to? these days. Carly Fiorina, of course, being one of the GOP nominees or trying to be uh, a nominee. She's a candidate for Mm -hmm. the presidential race. Um, What is she up to? Over the years, I have had a fascination with Carly Fiorina ever since she was known as Carlton S. Fiorina and became the first female Chairman, CEO of CEO, I guess, not chairman, CEO and president of a Fortune 50 company, which was at that point HP, and uh, proceeded to um, successfully drive it into the ground and fire 30,000 people. And it was, I followed that story. Well, let's definitely put her in charge of things. I would say so. So, in Keys to the Carly, I like to uh, bring up something that she's quoted as saying recently. Um, and uh, the one I've picked out this time was. A merger is a hard thing to pull off under any circumstances. 
it's even harder when everyone is against you. <laughs> <laughs> this in these are the words of a hero. This in relation these. to the tragic HP tragic acquisition of Compaq back in the 2000s. Uh, that's my keys to the Carly for this week. Y- you've been following the GOP race. There's now 17, 18 um, uh, candidates in there, and they're about to have another debate coming up on the 16th of September, CNN debate. What do you think of this group of rabble-rousers? Well, it's a large number of people with outsized ambition, isn't it? I mean, anybody who, anybody on either side who has the drive within themselves to say, I, hey, listen, everybody, I'm the person Give me the keys to this boat, and I will drive this boat around. So first of all, there's a little something mentally wrong about whoever says that on either side. But secondly, you should at least have some kind of qualifications in a prior lifetime, a clear know-how of the Constitution, a clear know-how of how the government works, a clearly displayed functioning knowledge of civics and the current law as it stands. There are several things that should be on your list of things, and you should have respect for those things that are the law and the way the government works and the great heroes uh, who set the country up and put put this great dream in motion. And I don't see that kind of... I see a lot of lip service to that kind of respect on the right, but I don't see a lot of actual respect in progress from all the candidates. Certainly there are some who have a greater respect for the Constitution, but by and large, there are people who say, yes, but the Constitution really says certain people get more rights than others. I'm giving you a longer answer than I probably should. Not at all. There's, There's no short answer to this kind of question. Assuredly, there are a handful of people that you could point to uh, on the right who wouldn't make a complete debacle of the next moment of governing. But then you have several people, Donald Trump, for instance, who's the current front runner, and he's just really a voice for bigotry, and he's a voice for ignorance, and he's a voice for the absolutism of ego. Yeah, Don, Donald would say, I, I, don't give me the keys to this boat. I got my own boat. I got my own boats. I got boats out the yin-yang. I got boats that are, that are gold-plated. I don't well, need a boat. It'd be good if he went and I'm just hung- going to build a wall. It'd be good if he just went out and hung out on his own boats by himself with all the people who actually love him. <laughs> and, and then drift far, far out to sea. Far, far. He is not to be trusted with, with our nation. Do you have any prescient uh, uh, idea of who you think may emerge a year from now as the front runner uh, GOP nominee, we won't Man, even deal would, with the Democrats I, at this point. You know, hardly a pundit. Uh, it just looks like a big circus to me right now. I imagine that Trump, given his the size of his ego, regardless of how the votes go, is going to hang in there, in e- either within the Republican Party or as a third-party candidate, the party of him, the Trump party. The good thing is that he would never accept the vice presidential nomination. He would never run alongside somebody else. It just, it just, just wouldn't happen. Well, he, no, he couldn't He play, likes to put his name on he stuff. He couldn't play second fiddle to, to anyone, really. Here's an interesting statistic, a couple of interesting statistics. The fact statistics. that he can't actually play the fiddle 
<laughs> that we know clearly, of. Clearly qualifies him for first chair in the New York Phil. <laughs> well, he'd hire somebody to play in his stead. As long as he wore a giant bumper sticker across his head that said Trump. <laughs> put it on the violin. Put it on the Stradivarius. It's no longer a Stradivarius. It's a Trumpivarius. <laughs> it's a Trumpivarius. Here's a couple of statistics that are really interesting. At this point, this very week in the 2012 presidential campaign cycle, former Texas governor... Rick Perry was leading the Republican field by 1.7 points. I found that hard to believe, but uh, he then sort of took a nosedive. You know, remember, it's, 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 more, it's a year from now. And at this point in the 2008 cycle, Hillary Clinton was leading Barack Obama by 15.6 points, while Rudy Giuliani, remember Rudy Giuliani, of course. Vividly. Yeah, absolutely. He was leading the GOP field by 10.7 points, well ahead of the rest of the field. So mm -hmm. if those numbers are any indication of how this thing goes, we, we really don't know who's going to emerge on the other side. I think this next debate is going to be a little bit more telling than the previous debates. Uh, and it's, as I mentioned, it's on September 16th uh, at the uh, Ronald Reagan Library. And uh, it looks like uh, my pal Carly Fiorina is going to get her chance to be in it. They're changing the rules, and she may be ab able to squeak in as one of the 10 or 11. Why do you figure she changed her name to Carly from Carlton? Well, she did it during her campaign for Senate in California, and when she, which she lost <laughs> to Barbara Boxer. And I think she did it so that she could uh, be identified as kind of a hip chick. She's also quoted as saying, when men cut jobs, they're seen as decisive. When women do it, they're vindictive. Victim much? Victimized, yeah, by, by, by boards and all. So. Def women are definitely often victims, but it sounds to me like she's more, more the victimizer than the victimy. Well, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what will happen in the coming few months anyway, until this sort of all washes out. Uh, at this point, I don't have any guesses. Uh, I think that Carly's going to hang in there right to the end, though. How do Carly and the doctor get along? That's a very good question. I've never actually seen such, them in the same room he's together. He's got such well-defined views on what women should and should not be able to do. I hope sparks fly at this, <laughs> at this CNN debate coming up on the 16th. That could be really awesome. I'm afraid it's going to be, as they say, more, more heat than light. Yeah, possibly so. Well, listen, enough about me and Carly Fiorina. Uh, she and I have a long history, and it'll continue to uh, go that way. You um, guys have had a long relationship at this point. We have. I, it we really have. It goes back. My, my wife is, is not kind of really understanding no. what kind of relationship it is, but I, 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 I'm fascinated by her career arc. It, let, let me just put it that way, and, and we'll leave it at there. So listen, tell us about this newest release on Concord Records called Passion World. Let me first say, Kurt, I love this album. I listened to it again last night. And I just loved it from Thank beginning you. to end. It may be my favorite album of yours, and I've got a lot of favorites, but I absolutely adored it. You know, you've been quoted in your press releases and in various interviews uh, about this album, but... I want our listeners here on the podcast to get a taste of it from your own lips. What was the inspiration for the album, and how, more importantly, did you determine the song selection? I, I noticed in the liner notes that this album is produced by you, 
which is indicative of the fact that all the major decisions were made by you, including the songs. My uh, mistakes. Tell us, tell us a little bit about um, you know your inspiration for it and and the the song choices that you made. Well, as you know, I travel a lot, and that means I'm encountering the world all the time and trying to connect with the world. And wherever you go, uh, if that's what's in your head and in your heart and you're trying to connect emotionally with audiences that don't speak the same language and, and you're doing it through the jazz lens, which even in the States and even in English-speaking parts of Europe, that can be a, a big challenge. So you've got that aspect, and then you've got the aspect where you're um, trying to learn as you go. How can I connect? Well, I could sing something in French for these people. You know, they've come out for me eight or nine times now. I should really give them something specific. You know, when I come back to Chicago, I can give Chicago specific, we can have specific inside jokes. I'm from here. I, I can reach back to a whole long relationship that I've had with the audiences here. And now in New York, to some extent, that's true as well. I'll go out to Seattle. We've got a we've got a rapport that we have together, and when I and so I can do certain things. I keep my eye on the paper, or I can relay a local poet or something like that. So it's natural that I would want to do the same thing with my audiences, say in France or Germany or Spain, where I've gone back a hundred times at this point, and you see some of the same people, and at the same time. Even if you don't see those people, you know you can feel that you've been there before. They can feel. They've heard from their friends. Uh, so it's, it's incumbent upon me, first as a, just as a person walking around who has the opportunity to travel so much, to try to learn some things as I go f from the places I'm visiting. So I routinely ask people, hey, you know, who, who's hot around here? Or who's the, if I were going to listen to three of the greatest singers from Turkey... I mean, people get so excited when they, when they can tell you, oh, my God, here, I'll write the names down, or let me go out and I'll run out to the record store and I'll get you three copies. And so over time, you build, for your own sake, just as a person, a kind of library of what your fans have regarded as the, some of the world's greatest sounds and some of the world's greatest songs. And then if you want to close the circle, then you want to figure out some way to process some of those melodies through whatever it is that I'm working on uh, and the musicians that I'm working with and the process that I've got so that when it comes out on the other end, it still somehow sounds like it's me, but it's me laying their thing back on them. And so after 20 years of being on the road, I have a big enough book, a thick enough uh, book of charts, and this seemed like the right time to do this. I see that on some of the songs, uh, some of the lyrics are by you or additional lyrics. For instance, one particular, La Vie en Rose. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with that, well, idea and, and, the, and the nature of the lyrics that you added? Um, some mm -hmm. of them are in English. Uh, I think all of them that you added were, yeah. are sung in English. Well, one of the big guests, and this is another stream of influence or energy that brought Passion World into being, the guest that we have on several of, these, on several of the cuts on this record and on bonus tracks is a magnificent French virtuoso accordion player named Richard Galliano. And we've done several dates together well before this Passion World was a recording idea. And he's tremendously energetic player and, as I say, an incredible virtuoso. And his work is very inspiring to me. In listening through many of his records, I came upon one that he made with Wynton Marcellus. I believe it was down at the Marciac mm. Festival. And it was Winton's group, and 
it was Galliano sitting in, and they did a version of La Vie en Rose, and then Winton took a solo. So that's Winton's solo with my lyric to the classic French. So there's a lot of intertwining connections that happen that make sense to me. There's a real braid, uh, all kinds of braids of ideas mm-hmm. that, that finally make, them, make themselves n- not necessarily known because they're, what's important for anybody who's listening is just a thing of beauty without any explanations. It's supposed to stand on its own. But for me, there are connections in all the compositions that are there. Sometimes it's because Galliano brought my attention to them. Sometimes it's because I'm playing in concert with friends of mine from abroad. Uh, there are two cuts that feature the WDR big band from Cologne, Germany. Yes. There's a cut that features the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra and my friend Tommy Smith. He's, we've exchanged so many visits with one another. And so it's not just my process, it's the process of me getting with my friends, Till Bronner, the great uh, German trumpet player, who's such a sweet guy and such a wonderful uh, musician. And to have these friends of mine that I've been making over the years play a role in the production of this record and, and to be featured in such, I hope, uh, loving and substantive ways, that's, that's another whole part of the pleasure for me in presenting this work. Well, all of these songs do stand on their own as a listener, a first-time listener, uh, when I first uh, got this uh, album. I'm fascinated by the liner notes, of course, and that always adds a little bit more of an appreciative quality. Mm. Um, And your explanations do as well, but I, I, I assure you that this album stands alone. If you didn't know anything about Kurt Elling or anything about his world travels, uh, it would be it would be a remarkable. It's it is a remarkable achievement. Um, how long did this take you to produce? Um, I noticed that some of these uh, cuts were were uh, recorded in even like in 2011 or 2012. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm very fortunate because so many times I go to these distant locations to perform with orchestras or big bands, what have you, and things are recorded as a matter of course because the technology is so easy and it just gets vaulted. So you record all these things and, you're, and I get a copy, just a rough mix, just from the board. And so I have this giant pile, as you can imagine, yeah. of concert after concert after concert. And in this case, I had them on hand and then when it became clear that we were gonna do a studio record, I said, well, we should get some of these things from these guys and include them in the... So then became the email uh, venture of (laughs) trying to... How can we connect? What is the fee going to be? What favors do we have to pull? How can we get them remixed? Who's going to pay for that? The the re-recording time, whatever it is that needs to happen. Much more complicated. Once that part of the conversation gets put into place for my manager than for me. Yeah. Because it's for him to track the stuff down and for him to wrangle the uh, fees and the right rights so, and so in many ways this was more complicated and had a lot more moving parts than just you going into a studio for sure for six to eight weeks and for recording sure. you know, 10 to 12 oh, six tracks to, six to eight weeks. <laughs> sorry <laughs> six to eight months four days four days two Labor. days of recording i think and one day of yeah. uh, of uh, sort of fixing individual spots. It was really more of a three-day and then an additional day out in Los Angeles. Right. 
and then some of these others were uh, previously were recorded, and you and had there to you go. figure those yeah. uh, figure those out in terms yeah. of the logistics of it. Mm-hmm. Well, you've mentioned your travels, and you mentioned you've been traveling for twenty years. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but I, I guess a, a musician's life is you got to go where they love the music and where they want the music. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been all over the gro- globe with your ensemble and as a soloist in bringing your musical gifts to dozens of countries. What Give us a sense of what your couple of favorite places are. If you mm-hmm. had one place that you had to go, other than the good old USA, of course, um, what's, been, what's been a remarkably uh, enriching experience for you that you would like to do Man, again? Man, there have been a lot of spots. There are very few spots. I'll, let, me put it, let me start from the other end. There are very few spots where I've gone and I really don't have any desire to go back. Or, or it was just so uncomfortable, f- not for any specific reason that the fans would have brought to the table, but just geopolitically, some situations mm-hmm. that were like, wow, man, this place is kind of depressing, or what have you. Favorites include, but are not limited to, going down to Australia. We have a great time in Australia. I could do this alphabetically, semi-alphabetically. Sure. Australia's gorgeous. Uh, Austria's beautiful. Denmark is uh, one of my favorite stops. Uh, going to Espana. Huh? Huh? Keeping it alphabetical. You you move that up from an S to an E. Well done, Kurt. (laughs) Nicely done. Uh, We have a ball. When we're in France, everybody's so lovely to us. They really get it. We we make the scene in Holland. Everybody gets my jokes. They think I'm really funny. Really? I'm not not saying you're not really funny. Uh, Holland, I I never would have pegged as a, a, a huge... Jazz, so It's a jazz country. It's country. a jazz. Uh, Holland's a jazz France country. France for sure. Spain, yes. Yeah. Uh, Holland, I, I, I wasn't sure. Holland is a jazz country. The young people are into it, and it's hip. And uh, like I say, man, they really think I'm funny. I don't know how it happens, boy. <laughs> I'm a big hit over there. God bless those people. What um, about uh, what about South American and Latin uh, countries? Have I haven't you played done, much down there? I haven't taken as much time down there. It's a, it's always a thrill to go to Brazil because of the incredible history of the music that's happening there that has been happening that continues to happen but i haven't gone as much to south america i've been in argentina a couple of times uh and then brazil uh several times i get to go again i think it's in maybe february or march most of the time most of the time it's been the u.s canada and western europe although increasingly i'm doing eastern europe i'm going i just found out i'm going to romania again and I'll be in the Ukraine again mm. uh, on this next tour. A couple of other spots. And Do you enjoy that? Spots. You enjoy that part of the world? I, the man, I'm, like I say, there are very few spots that I can't find a, a, a reason to enjoy the situation. Yeah, People, you, you strike me as a as a as a good traveler, one who's interested be. in getting to a new place and exploring it. You want to look open around. to the ideas and the culture and the people uh, and the music, of course. You want to find out what's shaking. And you want to be a part of it, if at all possible. We do have a bonus track where I sing in Polish that didn't get on this record because I wrote an, ad- an additional lyric in, in, in American. But we do have a Polish track <laughs> that's available on uh, iTunes and such. Like my friend Anna Maria Jopek, who's a really lovely Polish singer, wrote, uh, or it was really her husband, wrote the lyric for this Pat Metheny composition that opens up Passion World. So... If you want to hear me sing in Polish, I'm I'm told you can. If you're Polish, you can actually understand what I'm singing, which is a big deal. There's a, several several additional consonants 
<laughs> in, in yeah. Polish yeah. that yeah. occur right next to each other. There are words in Polish with no vowels. God bless them. That's a whole <laughs> other world to go into, man. Uh, I, coming from and, a and Polish background, I'll say, background, I'll say, I'll I say Poland is one of the beautiful spots in the world to go and sing. People feel it, and they're passionate about it, and they love it, and they laugh, and they, they cry when you want them to cry. It's just awesome. Now, do you go to Krakow? or? Uh, uh... I was just, the most recent one, I was in Gdansk, and that was fantastic, but I've done Krakow, I've done Poznan, I've done Rotzlov, I've done Bieli Bierstock. I think I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, isn't that the character from the producers? There's oh no, another. that's Bialystok. Right. Sorry, ne- never mind. <laughs> it's all right. My geography's all, all messed up. Listen, you grew up in a in a religious household. Um, you went to parochial schools. You went. You sung in choirs. You even attended the uh, University of Chicago Divinity School before choosing a, a performing career instead, or perhaps the performing career chose you. How has this early childhood and divinity background in, uh, informed your artistic sensibilities and journey? Now, I know that this is a weird question, but you know, you 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 were in that path for a very, very long time until young adulthood and then decided that I'm going to take my choices elsewhere. Does that early part of your life still influence you in terms of what music you choose to do, what style you choose to do it in? Um, does it inform your jazz? Does it inform your art? Anything that affects you, any, anything that affects a person deeply and consistently over a profound and formative period of life, that's going to be a part of whatever you produce thereafter, unless you have some kind of psychic break. You know, my the example that was given to me of piety and faith and service is one that I treasure, and it is one that really pointed me toward much more the experience of grace than, than the experience of the law. And my father in particular was very sweet in his spirit. And so I experienced the exaltation, uh, if you will, of what music can accomplish in people's emotional and spiritual lives in a very profound way from my earliest memories. At this point in my life, I'm quite a long distance from subscribing to any specific ecclesiastical uh, proposition <laughs> in a specific okay. sense. But the spirit remains. The most important aspect of that experience remains. Not the specifics of whatever uh, theological proposition may be on tap, but the experience of that same exaltation, that same healing, that same connection to that which we cannot see or prove but know somehow is there. And sure, that comes through the way I write lyrics, the things I'm like, more likely to focus on, the kinds of material that I choose when I'm not writing it myself. Even if it's a little bit more noir-themed or ironic, what have you, you know, I'm not here, I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't picture myself as I'm, you know, well, now I'm going to get up and tell everybody how to think and show you how to do your life and blah, blah. That's, that's specifically why I stepped away from any kind of uh, priestly path. Uh, that's, it's, it's not my, you know, unless you're hurting somebody, 
it's not my job to get up in your grill and inform you about metaphysical reality. <laughs> but if I can help you feel better, and if I can remind an audience and myself of a larger feeling, of a more transcendent feeling, of a more open-ended and joyful feeling, or as Rilke would say, if I can remind myself and others to live the questions, to have an, a feeling of the numinous, of, of awe, of true awe, then that's the deal. And it, it happens that thanks to Von Freeman and the late Von Freeman and the late Eddie Johnson and thanks to Ed Peterson and a, a whole ream of Chicago musicians living and now gone over who pulled me in again and again to the Chicago scene, then I found my vocation and I found the way for me to best grow into myself and to share, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever gifts I'm able to develop with people who might care to listen to them. I've always found your music to be sincere, and other people have commented as well that there's a kernel of spirituality to almost all of your songs. No matter what the style is or what it is you're doing, there is some deeply seated sense of goodness and wonder and, as you say, awe in whatever you're singing. I, I, even when I listen to the album here at home, I, I just picture you, and I, and I know you pretty well, and I've seen you perform live a number of times, so I have a good picture of you. I can see you totally invested in uh, the singing of that piece, um, whatever you're recording. And uh, I, I find that, that your um, spiritual background uh, comes through in, in virtually everything you sing, if not everything. Can you define your idea just briefly of the jazz format. Um, Roscoe has given me a sense of the fact that he's not musical at all. He doesn't know uh, a G clef from a half note, but he knows what he likes and he knows he likes jazz. And he wondered if you had in uh, a brief short words or statement, you know, some idea of, of what jazz really is. Your music is diverse. It incorporates elements of many different styles. Give me some definition of what you think your style in relation to the whole jazz universe is. I guess I'm kind of the guy, I'm, I'm one of the guys who has tried to study really hard and to understand and digest the best elements of the short but intensely and quickly developed jazz history to have a sense of what those implications, the implications of that short history have for uh, future possibilities. I'm now living in 2015, and that means that I have a different experience from the guys who were there in 55 and 65 and 75. And technology is different. None of the things that I'm experiencing now supersede that of the genius that's gone before. But, but because I'm not living there and because the jazz task is not to reiterate but to move forward, then I try to take what's the best from the past and bring it to my own filters and lenses and to listen for the things that have not been played yet that are asking to be played. 
in light of those past ingenuities. You know, jazz is a kind of, or at least it has been, a kind of urban folk music. It definitely developed from several different styles of music, very, very rural, very country, blues shouter, gospel music styles, but also from very highly developed and very schooled uh, Western styles. I want to say European styles in collision and in coordination with each other in the great melting pot of the United States and certainly early on and specifically New Orleans. And you had these different syncopated rhythms and African rhythms coming into contact with Euro European instrumentation and European, a European sense of harmony and pushing both of those or all of those uh, pushing them into each other, into a new uh, and inventive uh, hybrid of everything that had gone before. One of the major uh, elements of, of jazz, and one that I continue to try to wrap my head around, because I just, I just don't think that way, is improvisation. And that's not just picking up an instrument and playing whatever comes to your no. head. It's not improv. It's different than doing skits on stage. Yeah. Um, and and you, drum circles notwithstanding. Indeed. <laughs> do, you, do you practice that? Do you still study that and look for new ways to interpret melody and harmony? Absolutely. Every time I, every time I take on a new piece... There's a, there's a new, there's a new, you know, because what you have on your hands in jazz, you have the composition as written. You have the melody as written. And your job as a jazz musician and improviser is to take that guide, those guidelines, that blueprint, you know, because music is not what's written down. That's notation. Music is what has, it's, it happens in time. You're listening to music, now there's no music. Now there's music, now you're not listening to music anymore. So your task is to take the blueprints, the notation, and for a classical musician, it is to uh, recreate or to re-inhabit as written, as indicated by the written score, what the composer intended and to do that in such a way that it sounds as though it's happening for the very first time you are embodying the music that way the difference between a more classical strain and a jazz strain is that we take those notations and that skeleton that blueprint and our task is to make new inferences based upon those original indications. Those original indications set up certain boundaries and guidelines, but they're there to be modified because we are in the search of that, those melodies that complement the original idea, that grow from the original idea, but we're in search of melodies that have not been played, that we have not played before, and perhaps that no one's played before. And we want to do that in the moment in collaboration with other musicians on the stage and the audience and in front of an audience in real time. 
The way you do that is you have to become a composer. You have to answer all the same questions, high notes, low notes, many notes, few notes, what's best for the emotional content you want to convey, what best complements the chord changes that the piano player's responding to, although he or she is also going to respond to the altered changes that you're going to suggest, and you're going to respond to their altered. So uh, the, the framework, the original blueprint, has got to be much more alive and flexible because anyone could play anything that they deem something that's going to sound good at any time. And it's for everybody else in the band to respond to that in an equally compositional way. Have you done much composing um, recently? Are you interested I've in been that? Traveling. <laughs> well, there are there are pens and papers on uh, plans. You know, I'm not I'm not as nearly as much a write down. Here's a new song, composer, as I dreamed I would be or thought I would be. I'm much more a writer of lyrics, which are always in progress. I'm much more a paraphraser of melodies. You know, because, and that brings me to my point, scatting is exactly composition. It's just not written down. It has all the elements of composition. You're just not uh, notating what you're doing. Is that also a technique that you practice at, that you had to learn? Oh, sure. You have to, it, listen, I've got some assignments right now that involve uh, upcoming uh, upcoming gigs that are going to be very high profile and I need to really work some things out and investigate the chord changes that are in the blueprints so that I can understand how they work so that I don't just sing random notes because that won't work and people will know. You know, I really need to do my homework all the time. One of the songs on the album that I particularly was fond of in terms of playing with the melody uh, was uh, the U2 song, um, uh, Where the Streets Have No Name. Mm -hmm. Very unusual choice, very thrilling choice. One thing I like about songs like that um, on my, when I'm listening to uh, you or any other jazz artist reinterpreting what that is, is that I have such a clear sense of what the original piece was that I can go from that center and I can actually see what's, what the improvisation and revisions are going all around it until it finally comes back to the center of the song again. And I think, and listeners, if you get this album, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong when you listen to it. I think that song shows off your vocal skills better than almost any song I've heard you sing oh, in a long time. Cool. Your range is fantastic. Uh, your, the quality and pitch of your voice are absolutely pristine in that whole piece. And I was, I was thrilled from beginning to Thank end. Thank you. Um, here's another question from our friend Roscoe. And this, this leads us uh, down the path of other influences in your life. I know you're a, a student of theater and dance and art and literature and religion and theology. You've got a very wide range of, of interests and uh, knowledge. What are some of your most thrilling moments that you can remember in the theater? Do you remember theater experiences? Um, now, I know recently uh, one theater experience will stay with you forever and ever and ever. Um, you took your uh, <laughs> daughter and wife to a production of uh, Something Rotten it's on true. Broadway. 
And is it is it also true that she now, your daughter I'm speaking of, knows every lyric to every song on, she the, on has, the album? She has absolutely memorized the score. My friend, uh, your, well, your friend, your friend too, right? Sure. Brian Darcy Brian, James Brian is Darcy starring James. in that. So he's, a, he's really quite wonderful in that role and in a couple of the other roles I've, I've been fortunate enough to see him uh, perform. You're right. Uh, I, I will have that one memorized, if only because Louisa is singing it at me all the time. <laughs> That's cool. What other theatrical performances outside of, say, you know, Broadway shows, which I know you you live in New York now, you have the opportunity. We see them to on occasion. It's pretty stuff. expensive to get out and see that stuff. Yeah, but you've seen lots of things here in Chicago. Well, oh, you've sure. been involved in them yourself. Can yeah. you uh, think of one or two seminal uh, occasions that really, really affected you? And, well, there were. Maybe... Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think it was they did Mother Courage at uh, Steppenwolf several years ago. That was really profound. Not just to get into the heavy stuff. I mean, anytime I see a mammoth play that is well done, I'm in. I think I think there's a, the the peculiar rhythms of his language awareness and the way he goes through it. I mean, I could watch I could watch Glenn Gary, the you know the the when was that in the it was in the 80s. Uh, it was in the 80s, possibly early 90s, and that's Wayne Shorter playing all over that score. So you get the double bonus of, of seeing those great actors and that incredible Oh, you're language. talking about the film? Yeah, the film Yeah, version. the film, like early 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's incredible stuff that's floating around. I don't get to see nearly as much as I would like. Brilliant performances on the stage are absolutely mesmerizing when you have the chance to get to them. I'm, again, I'm on the road 200 nights a year, so but once I, I get home, I just want to sit down on the couch. <laughs> I don't blame you. you, you watch a little uh, college football, I don't do even you? do that. No. Nope. Just sit on the couch. I just sit. I just sit, and that's it. <laughs> well, I happen to know that you've been doing a little bit more than sitting. I happen to know you've been working on a side project for some time now. And, and speaking of theatrical, a theatrically based project that you hope to one day bring to fruition on the stage. Can you can you tell us anything about that at this juncture of the work? Well, I'm working on a thing uh, that I've been working on and talking about forever. And I'm hoping that this next year will be the time when it actually comes together. Uh, I'm doing a piece that's based on the life uh, of Joe E. Lewis, who was a up-and-coming jazz singer at the Green Mill, my home club in Chicago. And, and comedian. Well, first he was a singer. And uh, he was told not to take a contract at the place up the block, and he took it, and he suffered the consequences, because in those days, you don't cross a guy named Machine Gun McGurn. Because they sent some guys to his place, and they cut him all up, and they cut his voice, and they cut his face, and so he could never really sing with a certain kind of resonance again. And then he became a comedian as a, as a way to just survive and make money. So I've been working on a piece that's, it's, it's not going to be a period piece. I hope it's going to be a much more contemporary uh, setting that answers questions like, why would somebody in 2015 want to sing jazz anyway? And how does the art survive in an artist if the avenue of artistic expression is decimated? Why would you blow off the girl uh, with the golden heart just because, you know, you can't, I mean, that's your one salvation sometimes is the woman or the right man. And so you got to be careful with that. So, you know, plenty of things. I'm working on a, 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 a that's happening with my friend Guy Barker. We're going to be doing a BBC production 
which is why I really got to work on it because you can't take something over to the BBC because it was all smarty pants people over there. <laughs> they are. They know from radio and mm. they know from radio dramas and they know from radio dramas with music. So I'm heavily working on it. Well, I, I will wait with bated breath for any um, viewing of the Joey Lewis project. I'll call it the Joey Lewis project because I don't have another name for it at this point. It's fine. And uh, you just let us know when it's close to even being mm-hmm. seen by anybody. You moved to New York City a few years ago. Um, I you do were take my mail. I take my mail in New York at this point. So, what advantages, beyond the obvious ones, to your career and the broader appreciation of your music, has this change to an urban, to uh, of an urban environment uh, made for you? Obviously, you moved from Chicago, one of the great cities of America, of the world, and to another great city of the world. And more importantly, what the hell can we do to get you to move back to Chicago? (laughs) Because I would like to see more of you, both professionally and socially. Brother, I look forward to the day that that we move back and that we uh, set up housekeeping again here in town. Right now, we've got our daughter in the right school, so we're going to play that hand out. Uh, and I haven't really accomplished everything that I'm there to do yet in New York. I've made, I've made some really lovely friends, and I've been able to guest on several records that I, you know, people couldn't have afforded to... They can't, jazz musicians, they, it's like, oh, we really don't want to have Kurt Elling. Well, we've got to fly him out. Okay, so anyway, who else are we going to use? To be able to make the scene a little bit more, to show up places, to, to hear other cats play at their top level. Mm-hmm. These are the things that I was interested in, and I've been able to do some of them, but I definitely have a, a list of things that I need to get to still before it's time to come back. There are some set successes, and there are some partnerships I'm still working on forging. And just to, I mean, as you know, Chicago is my home. No matter how long I live in New York, I'm never going to say, Kurt Elling, New Yorker. That's, I don't, I just, I don't know how you would move into that feeling. I mean, I know the ghosts, a lot more of the ghosts in Chicago. Sure. I, know, I know the place where the place used to be before <laughs> it was this place two places ago. Yeah. And this is, my, this is my heart center. And a lot of the things that I do really do still just resonate because of my childhood and because of my young adulthood and the things that I you know, encountered here. What do you have to do to get me back? Brother, I, I'm not sure. You're already, you're already kind of doing it. So uh, it's, it's really more a matter of time and, and following, the, following the path that you're on. Well, and you uh, performed just recently with the Grand Park Music Festival Orchestra on the stage, the Pritzker stage at the Millennium Park, and uh, that was a, a wonderful night. Did you feel the love from 12,000 adoring Chicagoans. It was very wonderful. That was quite the crowd. I, I imagine you don't sing to crowds quite that large on <laughs> regular occasions. Well, not on, not, on a, not on a given Tuesday. Even through the walls, being backstage, I could feel and mm. sense how much the Chicagoans were so pleased and proud to have you back. Did you have a good time uh, that ball. night? I had a ball. It's one of my favorite venues. To, to, to stand on that stage and to look out the aesthetic beauty of it before anything else strikes you. The Frank Gehry design, the, but, it, but it's, what's, it's what you're seeing through the design. You're seeing all of Lake Michigan rooftops as it's headed toward the south. You're seeing all of the incredible uh, 
leaves of Grant Park. You're seeing the, art, the, the newest wing of the Art Institute. You know, you're smelling the, the fresh lake air. And then here's, as you say, I don't know how many thousands of people, and they're all my friends, because <laughs> it's all here in the hometown. Yeah. And I, you know, you recognize people, you can pick them out of a crowd, you see, oh, there's that guy, there's that guy, there's that guy. And then here's, Here's everybody else. It was a, it was a lovely night, and it's it's the kind of night that I treasure more than any other. It's it's a it's a lovely, wonderful thing to go into the world, and to have people take you into their hearts, and into their families. Sometimes the compliments that I get from people who have come and they're bringing their their kids or their grandkids or they're bringing their parents or their we fell in love to you or we had your song at this thing or all of that is lovely and wonderful and I and I embrace it but there's nothing like coming home uh, I'll quote my good friend and partner on this show Roscoe last time saying uh, Kurt was one cool cat that night <laughs> and, and he's not even that hip we've learned an awful lot about you and your music uh, on this on this episode so far there's a little parlor game called chat pack and it's a course of just pulling um, random cards and then answering the question it could Sounds be right. could be uh you know anything about yourself or your philosophy or you know what what's your favorite ice cream some Random of them are easy and some some of them are not so i'm going to let you pull a card okay and like read it that one there you go let's this see what card, that says this we, so our thing is we're going to have a conversation about this well, or is it gonna, a specific question it's a specific question okay. it might lead to some conversation about this all right if now, really? It's, I better pick a different one. It's in the pack. Yeah, but this is exactly, this isn't off topic at all. This has nothing to do with ice cream. Why don't you read it? Let's hear it. If you had a great voice and had the opportunity to record a duet with any singer living today, whom would you choose as your partner for the recording? Wow. Well, I don't have a great voice. <laughs> so apropos of moi... And just because I've always been selfish about it, I have to I have to say Stevie Nicks. Oh, really? Because <laughs> like that sultry okay. whiskey voice, and All right. I've been a big what tune fan would you do? Her. Oh God, I don't know. Maybe Leather and Lace. Mm. <laughs> Maybe Leather and Lace. She's older than I am, for God's sake. Nothing wrong with that. Now you do have a good voice. Let's just say, okay, you have a good voice. Is there, um, is there someone, you, you, you sing with great people and musicians all yeah, over the I've, world, obviously. I've been, is there I've been someone very fortunate that, so far. I mean, is there I just, someone that you've, uh, you know, that you could, if you just There are so many, wish. I mean, yeah, there are definitely people out there, but I mean, uh, so far I've already gotten to sing with, with some of them. I mean, um, well, I got to duet with Renee Fleming. Yeah, uh, on yeah. her Christmas record last year yeah. and a couple of things. That was a thrill. She is one of the sounds of the age. You know, she didn't get to go full out opera stuff on our thing. That would be fun. I'd like, you know, speaking of, I mean, I'd love to do a thing with Bryn Turfel where we both just go toe to toe. That would be there a There you go. I think that would be fantastic. That would really be fun, fantastic. right? Just really like do a thing where it's. <laughs> I would buy tickets to that. <laughs> See, that could can really be like a reality louder. show. <laughs> well, uh, that's a great answer. Well, you pick the card. Um, let's let's do one more. Uh, All right. And maybe this one will have more to do with ice cream Chat than pack. something else. Here we go. Yeah. When people find out what you do for a living, what is the most typical question that they are likely to ask regarding your job? People usually ask me 
is it fun meeting all of those famous people? Hmm. Because I work in the backstage mm-hmm. That's right. um, production, uh, you know, support areas more often. And they say, is it really fun meeting all those important people? Um, you say some of the time I it is. You usually say sometimes, not always. That's for darn sure. Sometimes it is. When people ask you, Kurt, what you do for a living and you tell them, I'm a professional singer. What, what a, do you say? Do you I'm tell a them a jazz singer? You're, yeah, you're a jazz I just say singer. I'm a jazz singer. They they usually say, "Oh, really?" And I say, "Yeah." And they say, "Do you do that full time, or do you have to do something else along with that?" And I say, "No, that's it." And then they say, "Well, do you have your own band, or do you with somebody else?" And I say, "I have my own band." I say, have I heard of you? And I say, "No, you haven't. You would be not asking me these questions if you had you." And they say, can I look you up on, online? That's generally the trajectory. Right, right. That's airplane <laughs> conversation. Yeah. Really? You do? Really? Full time? As if. Can you do that? Yeah. Can one do that? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I say one, one can. And one does. <laughs> one, one Many can. people do. It's a challenge. I'm going to do one more here because these are, these are uh, enlightening for me. One more. Which month of the year do you think would best describe your personality? October. Why? It's a month that has the possibility of warmth. I, I feel like October. Hmm. I th- when I think of October, I think of school starting again, and the season is on. The theatrical season, the, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the season. It's, that, that revs me up. October revs me up. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be Octo- your October. I'm your Miss October. You are my Miss October. How about you? What, what month uh, would you describe yourself as? I'm probably November because it's genuinely getting cold. And it's, yeah, a lot of the leaves are off the trees by then, and you're anticipating old man winter. And I'm, I've been anticipating my old man self for years now. You, you consider yourself an old soul? No, but I'm looking forward to being just old. Really? Yeah, because then, man, I don't have to do anything. Every month has its play of possibilities. It does, and these are fascinating small questions that lead us to either great insight or insignificance. I'm not exactly sure yeah. what any of them mean. But, uh, Kurt, it has been an absolute delight and thrill to have you here on Talk Sports. I think our listeners are going to have a great, great time. Can you stick around for just a minute? I've got a little bit of business to take care of, and uh, maybe you might be interested in this. Recently, on our last podcast, we announced the winner of a giveaway for... Uh, a $100 gift card to one of our favorite places, a Kanto restaurant uh, in um, Chicago, right on Mis- Michigan Avenue. And it was so successful that our good friend Billy Lawless, who owns and operates a Kanto, has generously offered us another gift card to one of his other fine establishments, The Gage, right next door at 24 South Michigan Avenue. Well, The Gage is a 
Well, it's a lively, always hopping mix of locals and tourists from all over the world. Kurt, you've been to the Gage right there on Michigan Several Avenue. Times. Isn't that a isn't that a wild place? Isn't it fantastic? Lovingly presented cocktails. Yeah, it's a it's a more casual option to a canto next door and offers savory delights like Guinness battered fish and chips, one of my absolute favorites, and the Scotch egg. Have you had the Scotch egg? I haven't yet. Scotch egg, uh, which is a hard boiled egg wrapped in sausage, then coated in breadcrumbs, and then deep fried. <laughs> next time you're in Scotland. You might have to order one of those up. Yummy. Um, there's a great beer selection, generous wine pours, big cozy booths up front for seating that's slightly away from the often crowded action in the fun, fun bar area. And again, to win this $100 gift card, just go to our website at www.talksportscast.com and sign up for our mailing list to become an A-lister fan of Talk Sports will be drawing for the winner of the card on Monday, October 19th. So sign up on the site soon, and we'll be monitoring that. And good luck in our drawing. And yes, Kurt, guests are eligible for entry. Woohoo! Well, we usually finished our segments, our episodes anyway, with a little segment we call The Kiss of Death. I'm going to read a little bit about Francis Kroll Ring. I love it. You may have heard of Frances Kroll. You may not. Frances Kroll Ring, secretary to Fitzgerald. She died at 99. Which Fitzgerald am I talking about? Frances Kroll Ring, the personal secretary to F. Scott Fitzgerald. She had some stories. For the last 20 months of his life and a longtime source of information for biographers, documentary filmmakers, students, and fans died at her home in Los Angeles, and she was 99 years old. That's a pretty good life. Miss Ring, who wrote about her experience in a 1985 memoir called Against the Current, as I remember F. Scott Fitzgerald, began working for Fitzgerald in the spring of 1939. In her early 20s at the time, she had recently moved to Los Angeles from the Bronx. <laughs> no indication of why she moved from the Bronx to Los Angeles, but I'm going to guess the weather and jobs. And she learned about the job one morning at Rusty's Employment Agency. <laughs> Rusty's Employment Agency and Auto Parts, I'm sure, on Hollywood Boulevard. She immediately uh, was dispatched for an interview. She drove to Encino, where Fitzgerald was living alone in a bungalow on the estate of the actor Edward Everett Horton. At the time, she was admitted to the house by a maid and found Fitzgerald in bed, awake but suffering from what he called a fever, unaware of his reputation as a drinker. She did not question his diagnosis. Fitzgerald told her that he was looking for a secretary who had no ties to the studios as he was planning a novel about Hollywood, he said, and needed an assistant who would not gossip with other movie people. So she began working for him right away, and while she learned about his drinking problems soon enough, she also discovered he was an orderly, hardworking writer, motivated not only by the desire to revive his literary career after the early successes of the, This Side of Paradise and The Great Gatsby, but also by a need to make money. He was supporting at that point his wife Zelda, who was in a sanitarium in Asheville, North Carolina, and a daughter Scotty, who was a student back east at Vassar, so he needed the money. Well, the novel Fitzgerald was starting was The Last Tycoon, a story informed by his years as a screenwriter at MGM and based on the life and the, of the producer Irving G. Thalberg, 
Hollywood's idealistic wonder boy who scorned the industry's commercialism and before dying in 1936 at the age of 37, a very young man. Uh, there's now the Thalberg Award that they give every once in a while on they the do. Oscars, uh, but you've got to be extremely deserving of it. As Fitzgerald's secretary, Francis Kroll typed drafts of the novel and served as a sounding board as he built the story, tore it apart, and put it back together again. She also did errands and chores for him and cooked some simple meals. She described him as gentle, thoughtful, and fatherly, and although he had an affair with Hollywood gossip columnist Sheila Graham while Miss Ring was in his employ, she said he was a loner who lived frugally and rarely ventured out. Fitzgerald was 44, only 44 when he died of a heart attack Ooh. on December 21st, 1940. Uh, he died at Mrs. Graham's apartment, the woman he was having the affair with. It was left to Francis Kroll to uh, make all the mortuary arrangements and to put his affairs in order. She paid his bills, chose a simple coffin, and shipped his body to Maryland for burial in his family's plot in Rockville. Her memoir was the basis of a 2002 movie called Last Call, uh, which had its premiere on Showtime and starred Nev Campbell as Mrs. Ring. Hey, now. And Jeremy Irons as F. Scott Fitzgerald. Well, let's look that up this afternoon. Uh, we think we have to. We need to get that uh, on the Netflix, don't we? It's called Last Call. She told the Los Angeles Times in 1996 that her presence as a flesh and blood connection to Fitzgerald delighted his admirers, who were always interested in the details of his life, like his preferred gin, Gordon's, and his preferred cigarettes, Raleigh's. And what his voice was like. Mostly, she said, they just simply wanted to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. What a great life. 99 years old and uh, served as the secretary for F. Scott Fitzgerald while he was writing The Last Tycoon. Thank you, uh, Kurt Elling, for a splendid guest appearance on our show. Thank you. Couldn't be more proud. And we will see all of our podcast friends and listeners on our next podcast. Take care, everyone. And the only heart I own For you and you alone That's all I can only give you country walks in springtime And a hand to hold when leaves begin to fall and a love whose burning light Will warm the winter night That's all That's all There are those, I am sure Who have told you They would give you the world for a toy All I have are these arms to enfold you and a love time can never destroy if you're wondering what i'm asking in return dear you'll be glad to know that my demands are small say it's me that you adore for now and evermore That's all That's all There are those I am sure Who have told you They would give you the world 
toy All I have are these arms to enfold you And a love time can never destroy If you're wondering what I'm asking in return, dear You'll be glad to know that my demands are small Say it's me that you adore For now and evermore That's all That's all